0: I didn't get jobs from applying other than linkedin the rest of them were all through meetups slack channels mentorships so go out get involved in those kinds of arenas but also as we were speaking to earlier follow your passions
1: welcome to the exponential growth podcast where we demystify what it takes to break into tech I'm your host, James Hudnall, and my goal is to highlight real-life examples of people moving into careers they love, so you can too. Hey everyone. Today I'm joined by Catherine Lewis, a UX engineer at LinkedIn. She's also a global partnership lead, content creator, a coach, and probably more things than I can cover in this intro. Now, from the outside looking in, Catherine's journey into tech appears to be anything but conventional, getting a master's degree in elementary education, and later another one in human consciousness before eventually turning to code. So today we're going to dive in, learn more about Catherine and her journey into tech. Catherine, welcome to the show.
0: Hey James, thank you for having me.
1: What does it mean to be a UX engineer? I'm sure I probably have talked to one, but I've never talked to one like this and I'm very curious.
0: Yeah. So a UX engineer is a front end software engineer that also does design work. So I will create mockups of a particular platform. And then I will also write the code.
1: Okay. Very cool. Now, when you were younger, is this something that you could kind of see yourself moving into, or is this a far cry to whatever you you dreamed of doing growing up?
0: (laughs) Um, I didn't even know such a thing existed. I had no idea that this is what I'd be doing in my career. When I was younger, I either wanted to be president or a quantum physicist and neither okay. of those has happened yet. <laughs> so
1: Yet, that's right. No, you still have time. But that that's very cool. So wanted to be either president or a quantum physicist. So, I guess going back to early childhood, where would you grow up? What was it like?
0: Yeah, so I grew up in Colorado and um had a very like normal childhood. Um nothing crazy about it other than, you know, normal family dynamics. We had a little bit of Um, trauma in in terms of some incidents that happened, but um, pretty average childhood.
1: Okay. And then so throughout school and maybe into high school and moving on to college, eventually, I always ask because I know I very much lacked intentionality at that point in my life. And I kind of just went to college because it was expected of me and it was a thing to do. So I'm curious, was college a conscious choice for you? And how did that journey kind of play out?
0: Yeah. So my parents always talked about college. I mean, it wasn't often, but just enough throughout my childhood where I knew that I was going to go to college and I looked forward to that. um, And I was very clear on what I wanted to study. I was inspired by my grandparents who ran their own business. My grandmother was a very strong saleswoman in tech, one of the first, um, as a female to do what she did, but she was very smart, very business savvy. And I really wanted to follow in her footsteps.
1: Yeah, no, that's amazing. So you went, I think I see that you got a bachelor's in entrepreneurship and strategic management. So was that the first step in this journey?
0: Yep, exactly.
1: Okay. And then, so I've never heard of entrepreneurship as a degree, maybe you can just do a, uh, a quick, not a, a sidebar, but something to that extent. So what's the difference in, I guess, a more traditional business administration versus an entrepreneurship uh, focused bachelor's degree, if you know the difference?
0: Yeah, there wasn't a huge difference. I actually was going to do marketing for a while. And then um, it ended up that I'd have to be in for more than four years. And I Just didn't want that. So I switched to a different one. Um, I didn't think that I was very good at math. So I was like, well, I'm not doing accounting or finance. Um, So I and I knew that I was a really good communicator and a good leader. So I thought management was a good fit. And then the entrepreneurship piece was something that I was really called to. I had already started a couple of businesses and a nonprofit. And so the entrepreneurship was a really good alignment there. In terms of what did I study, it wasn't a huge difference, just a couple of different classes on how do you actually start your own business and operate it? Um, How do you scale and grow? What should you be thinking about as you move through the different stages of business development? Um, Yeah, so not a huge difference, but it just was very well aligned with my um, interests and identity at the time.
1: Yeah, no, I like it. And then I guess at this point, Catherine, were there any hints that you might eventually move into tech one day? Or are you just really exploring this business side of your interests?
0: Um, it's interesting. One of the companies that I started was a 3D printing company. So I guess you could say I had interest in tech, but I didn't perceive myself to be someone who was going to move into the tech industry. I was more focused on the problem that we were trying to solve. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Things just evolved in interesting ways. I will say that while I was in business school, I went on a career trek. And so what that meant is they would take students you know, to San Francisco or New York for a week and you were focused on finance or marketing a particular uh, topic. And they would take you to different businesses and show you around what is the company like, what kind of work do they do, so you'd get exposure and could have more information deciding where you wanted to take your career. And I remember going to New York City and we went to the top of the Empire State Building where LinkedIn's office is and just loved touring the office and seeing the view and they had this secret speakeasy in the office Mm -hmm. which was super fun and I thought wow it would be so amazing if I could work here one day but I had a lot of like self-doubt and so I was like oh I don't know how that could ever happen and then graduated and turned out you know, four years later, I'm working at that company, but as a software engineer, I mean, I was like, what? (laughs) This is wild. Yeah,
1: Yeah. no, that's amazing. And I, so I think I see before you got that first or the bachelor's degree, it looks like you also studied in Prague. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I did my study abroad in the Czech Republic.
1: That's amazing. I went there with a, uh, I don't think I've, I've really talked about this, but I went there with a mission trip uh, in the uh, church ministry when I was growing up, I think I was probably 10 or 11 and we went to the Czech Republic to Prague as well. And I, there were no smartphones back then. And so I didn't take any pictures or anything like that, but it was amazing being exposed to that culture. So I'm just curious, I guess, selfishly when you made that decision, was there any intent behind going to Prague versus other places? Or is that maybe one of the only options that you had to quote unquote study abroad with the program you were in?
0: Yeah, I had lots of different options. I just wanted to go where other people weren't going. And so, um, you know, everyone was going to France, Germany, and Spain. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity to go somewhere where most people travel. I hardly know anyone who's been to the Czech Republic, although it's absolutely beautiful. Like everyone should go. Um, And I also wanted to learn a language that's not very common either. And so... I got to study Czech while I was there, um, and it's so centrally located that you get to go to all the other places where everyone is anyways on vacation, though, and so I really enjoyed my time studying there.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And going back to my own, I I guess as a 10-year-old, I didn't have a lot of autonomy as to the choices that I could make and the places that I could go, but I still remember, even without the pictures, the cathedrals and just the the, the structures were so beautiful and so different than anything I'd ever seen, so that's that's really cool. So, okay, so you graduate with that degree. What happens next?
0: In searching for my next move, a lot of the options that we had were in management consulting. And I, you know, entertained a couple of companies, did a couple of interviews, and then wasn't really feeling it. I was like, I don't see how I can make a meaningful impact in this route. And so I decided to go to Teach for America and become a teacher for a couple of years. I wasn't sure if it would just be the two-year commitment or if it would be a more long-term thing, but I just knew I wanted something that really made a difference in people's lives. And for me, I just wasn't seeing that in the business world.
1: Okay. And so I, I've heard of Teach for America. I'm not familiar with the program. I didn't know if maybe you wanted to cover that at the highest level and then maybe explain how that played into your eventual master's degree in, uh, teaching. I'm curious.
0: Yeah. So Teach for America is pretty prestigious. And I only say that because that kind of mattered to me at the time. I was very, like accomplishment focused and, um, brand focused. And so, applied there and the concept is that you teach in an inner-city school um, or a rural area, but a school that's in need of help um, and usually has a demographic that is free and reduced lunch heavy Um, and you teach for two years at a minimum and you get a master's in education And then the hope is that either you will stay in that school and continue to contribute to that community, or you'll take whatever you learned about the systems of education and take that into politics, law, business, and do something that supports the educational system in America and making it better for children and families who are going through it.
1: Okay. And so I guess trying to summarize back what I'm hearing from you, you liked the program because it was prestigious and was it did you have plans thereafter or were you again kind of exploring this interest in trying to make a meaningful contribution and trust that you'd be able to figure out the path thereafter maybe
0: yeah i didn't know what the path looked like um honestly i had no idea i just knew that i really wanted to help people and i was in it to teach And I absolutely loved it and was going to continue to be a teacher, uh, except a couple of key things happened that caused me to pivot in my path.
1: Yeah. is this maybe, yeah, if you want to talk about those, what uh, what happened?
0: Yeah. So I taught for two years. Um, and my second year, I actually took over a classroom where the original teacher taught through October and then she kind of dipped out. She was like, I can't handle it. And um, and I say this respectfully because the students were incredible. They also had a lot of behavioral issues that were um, exemplified. And in my opinion, the reason is they were a year and a half behind. And so when if you're teaching on grade level and you're not giving them the supports, they're not interested because they can't understand it. They they don't have the comprehension, not that they can't. It's just that they need that support because they were a year and a half behind. And so instead of trying to engage in that content, it's a lot easier to poke Jenny or, you know, mess with Bobby or whoever, right? And so it was a lot of work um, to get them up to speed. I stayed, you know, a lot after hours. I would tutor kids on the weekends um, I did a lot of extracurriculars with them and would, you know, go to their parents and say, like, hey, can I take them to the baseball game? Can I take them to the soccer game to build those relationships? Because then, like, that's the most important piece, in my opinion, as a teacher. You have to have those relationships with kids, and then you can, you know, move them along on this educational journey. Otherwise, they don't trust you and, and they don't see, well, why should I be learning these things? And, um, So it just was like a lot of stress and pressure that I put on myself, Um, a lot of long hours, and it led to some health issues. And towards the end of that year, like my body was breaking down in various ways. And I actually had to step out of the classroom for like the last month or so of the school year. And that was just really disappointing because I have really high expectations of myself and wanted to be there for the students. And so I was actually offered a teaching position there next year in New York City. Um, I was originally teaching in Colorado and thought about moving and, and doing that, um, taking that job. However, there was something else that had caught my attention. So while I was teaching, I had summers off. And during the summers, I was introduced to a program called Code with Klossy. And it's ran by Carly Kloss, who is a a famous model. And she really wanted to get high school girls into software engineering. And so she started this nonprofit and partnered with Teach for America to have teachers teach the summer camps um, during the summer. And I was like, well, I know nothing about programming, and I still had this belief about myself that like I wasn't good at science and math. And so I had some doubt, but I was like, you know what? Let's just try it. It's a summer camp. Let's see if I can do it. So we went through a weekend workshop with um, a software engineering school that's actually located in Denver, Colorado. And they gave us of a quick introduction to software engineering and then we had to run these camps and so we had to teach ourselves like in the evening how to program and they were basic lessons so we were able to pick up on them but I'd spend two weeks in Austin or Chicago or Detroit working with these high school students and seeing what they could create and it was just so incredible to spend time with them and see how they picked up on this and they were able to create anything and they were making apps that You know, we're supposed to encourage people to recycle or um, encourage them to form a community, you know, to support self-esteem or whatever it was. It was just fun to see them create. And over the course of doing that for two summers while I was teaching, I was like, you know what? This is pretty interesting and I'm actually good at it. So what if I pivoted in this direction? Yeah. And so I went to the software engineering school, so it's called Turing, and I knew that they were aligned with my values. I didn't just want to learn how to code. I wanted something that would refine me and develop me as a person. And they incorporate a lot of values into their curriculum um, around personal development. And so I applied to that program. This was in 2019. And then focused on front-end engineering and went through that program for about nine months and then transitioned into the world of tech.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, a lot to unpack there. I I love all of that. So going back to where you were teaching at this camp for, it sounded like two years, did you see yourself getting better day over day, week over week, month over month? And was that giving you confidence over those two years? And I really want to, I guess, dig in there, Catherine, because I remember back when I was learning programming and the struggles that I went through, and I'm curious how you maybe went through similar struggles and how you dealt with that, obviously successfully in hindsight, given where you've landed up.
0: Yeah. So my time at Turing was very interesting. It was um, pretty action packed. I was working three jobs um, in order to kind of cover the cost and um. then we would program for eight hours a day. So we had courses all day long. And then after that, you would go and do your project. So I'd be working at night, I'd be working on weekends. Um, at the time, the program was in the bottom of a bank building, so in the basement. And now it's all virtual. But I would stay in that basement and there's no windows. So you lose track of time. So I'd be there until 2 a.m. working on a project. There's no one else in the building. And then I'd be like, well, I still have more work to do before class. And class starts at like 8, 9 a.m. So I'm just going to take a quick nap and then get back up and do it again. So I slept there a couple of nights um, Mm. and just kept doing the work, kept grinding. And, um, it was a lot, it was a pretty intensive period. And at the same point in time, I had a family member who got, um, really, really sick during that time. And so I also was helping care for them. I honestly didn't do a fantastic job. I wish, I wish that that piece of life had gone better, but that was another, um, request on my time, if that makes sense. Like that was another thing to pay attention to. So, I actually it's a four module program and I failed the third module. It just wasn't clicking. I wasn't getting it. And I think part of it is because of everything that was going on and just being exhausted mentally. So I repeated that module, which I was very happy for because then I had a much deeper understanding than I think I would have, even if I had grasped it the first time around. So that kind of extended my time in the program. It's not typically as long as the nine or so months that I spent.
1: Okay. So that's the technical side of the house. What about on the, I don't want to say the behavioral side, but maybe the career services side, were there any offerings there to kind of help you with what came after and how that went?
0: Yeah, they're super supportive in module four. They do a lot of work around your resume, uh, LinkedIn profile, finding jobs, uh, interviewing. We do a lot of practice in terms of technical interviews because that's often really difficult for people. Um, They had an entire spreadsheet of back-end and front-end alumni who were willing to meet with you and and do practice interviews. But I actually started in module two. So this was about six weeks into the program that I started looking for jobs and applying, which wasn't typical. Um, But I... Don't so know I just like hustle and so I just wanted to to get a head start on that. And so I probably applied to several hundred positions, heard back from none of them, but it, that was fine because it got exposure, I got exposure to what's out there. what kind of companies am I interested in? What are they looking for? What uh, levels can I apply for? Can I actually go for mid-level entry, apprenticeship, you know what's my skill set? And then around my first time in module three, I connected with a back-end alumni and said, Hey, you know, would you be willing to meet on weekends and go through technical interviews? And again, they didn't really have you do that until module four, but, uh, we would meet for an hour or more every weekend and we'd run through different technical questions. And that helped. Like we were doing them in languages that I wasn't as familiar with. Um, But it just to have the practice was important. How do you receive a question and stand in front of a whiteboard and think through your thoughts and explain it to someone else? Like that requires a lot of practice because it can be very intimidating. It's less about the code and more about just the the actual practice of interviewing. So that was really helpful. And then I joined um, several meetups, uh, local meetups just to go and sit and code with other people who were engineers. And that led to a couple of job opportunities of people were just sitting in a coffee shop or at a sushi restaurant and they'd say, hey, we're trying to hire someone, Like, give me your resume. And that led to interviews, um, which they were just slower to respond than other companies. And so I don't know if that would have panned out. I was still in the interview process when I got my first offer. Um, and then the last piece of that, um, is just joining dev related Slack channels. So there was a Denver based Slack channel and they had a jobs channel. So every Wednesday they'd post jobs and I would just reach out and say, Hey, you know, here's who I am. Here's my resume. I'm interested. And that's actually how I got my first job, which was not LinkedIn, um, but was at a local startup.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, before we go there, I want to jump back and highlight something I, I heard where early on, a, a few things. You were applying before you needed to apply because you understood the importance of putting yourself out there and learning how the process worked. That makes total sense, but I still feel like that's a, a testament to your motivation and your drive to try to work through this and to move into this field, which is amazing. And then also, you know, you mentioned you may have applied to as many as a few hundred of these companies and heard nothing back and jumping to the perhaps the punchline, I feel like you found a, I would call it a backdoor. I'm not sure that's the best terminology for it, but instead of continuing to, to bang your head against a proverbial wall, You figured out that through genuine networking, through these meetups and through genuine relationships, you were able to interview with companies just at coffee shops. So I just wanted to repeat back what I heard just for the people listening out there that are in that same situation where they're just applying to job after job, you know, I guess adopting the shotgun approach. There are different ways to attack that problem. And it sounds like that networking really worked for you. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was all about the relationships. So I got two different interviews from the meetups. I got another interview from the dev channel. I got another interview from my assigned mentor through Turing and another interview from the backend engineer who was doing technical interview work with me. So yeah, I had five different um, jobs or sorry, companies that were looking at me until like I got my final offer and all the other ones were still in progress by the time that I accepted that first offer.
1: Okay, and for the interview process themselves because we love talking about interviews on the show, is there any are there any horror stories or anything that went really well during those five interviews that you feel like might be relatable to the audience?
0: Yeah, um no horror stories. I mean, every interview is nerve-wracking, so beyond those nerves, There wasn't anything crazy, but there definitely were moments when you're answering the questions or you get a question and you're like, oh, I know I should know this, but I cannot think of anything right now. And you just have to calm yourself down and say, okay, pretend I'm making a peanut butter jelly sandwich for an alien. Like they know nothing about this. I need to walk myself step by step. First, take out the bread, grab the jar of peanut butter, you know. And so by calming myself down and saying, okay, let's start with the most basic steps and just walk myself through it, I was able to get more traction in some of those questions where I just totally blanked because of nerves or just absolutely didn't know it. Um, And if you really cannot come up with anything, that's the, the one valuable thing that I learned is to say, I don't know. I don't know, but what I do know is that when I don't know something, this is what I do. I'm going to look here. I'm going to Google this. I'm going to try that out. I'm going to rely on this piece of information. If you can walk your interviewer through how would you find this information if you don't know it, that's also really helpful because that's probably, I don't know, like 70% of the job is running into things that you don't know how to do or error messages you don't understand. And you need to be able to figure them out like we're not geniuses like sorry to any (laughs) engineer who's listening but um there are a lot of smart people in this industry but we're not you know really that different than anyone else it's just learning how to learn how to solve errors how to say you don't know something not waste a lot of time on banging your head and go ask someone else or go search online
1: yeah i feel like that's so critical getting comfortable with letting people and letting yourself know that you don't know something, but also at the same time, not just giving up at that moment, to your point, learning how to learn, learning how to explore and learning how to work through and eventually get that answer. And I feel like if you can figure out how to think that way and to present yourself that way, not just in an interview setting, although I feel like it would help there as well, because to your point, a lot of what I've done so far in development is troubleshooting and looking for solutions for questions that you've never had to answer before. But I feel like it would help people in life in general as well, because it's not, I don't know, maybe it's social media where, you know, you're just presented with the highlight reels and you just feel like everybody's perfect except you. To your point, that is not the case. We're not perfect. Everybody has their flaws. And I feel like that's part of the beauty and what makes life awesome. So, all right, maybe jumping now to your, your first tech job, because you mentioned that is there anything in that interview setting that you feel like went particularly well, or do you feel like we should just jump into the role itself and what that looked like?
0: Yeah. The interview process for that first role wasn't super crazy. Um, Again, you get to pick the language that you want to interview in. So that was comfortable. I remember I was having to write out on sticky notes, like my code and, and response to the questions, which I thought was interesting rather than using a whiteboard. Um, I don't really know what the thought process was behind that, maybe a limited amount of space or something like that, but no, it was pretty, pretty normal. Um, the interview, I had one interviewer and it was the CTO and he just was very patient with me and allowed me to say, I don't know, allowed me to ask questions. Um, And then I had an interview with the founders and that was more of a personal cultural interview. And then they were like, all right, let's do it. So it was pretty basic.
1: Nice, -hmm. Nice. okay. So then you're, you're in tech, what was it like if you can take yourself back to that moment? Did you feel like you had finally made it, that you had life figured out?
0: Oh my goodness. Even now I don't feel that way. I'm realizing that you never do. Yeah. Um but at the time no, I was I was scared to be honest. I was like, uh, wow, now I have to actually do this for real. And there's I felt like there was no one to help me, not that there wasn't. But the team was super busy. It was a startup and they had a lot of work that they had to do. The CTO is coding all day long. You know, he's not in a leadership position. So everyone was under pressure. Everyone was having to hustle. And I didn't even know where to begin. It was this giant code base. And, uh, you know, you want to get in day one and start doing things. And really what I've learned is the onboarding process to any new code base especially if there's a lot of systems that you have to get used to and get permissions for, uh, depending on the size of the company, it can take several weeks or several months to get onboarded. And I don't think that's anything that anyone likes to call out, especially managers who are hiring people, like never um, are reasonable about that to my experience, but it really does. It can take weeks or months. But when you're a new engineer and you are expecting yourself to perform day one, and be banging out code. It's unrealistic. And then you have all this performance pressure and you think that you're failing. And for me, sometimes I just wanted to like, I don't know, cry or something, right? Because um, it's just like, wow, I feel like I fooled myself. I feel like an imposter. I feel like they let me go out into the world and I wasn't ready. But that's not the truth at all. Like it's so far from it.
1: I'm so glad you you called that out because to your point, I can speak to my own LinkedIn onboarding and to your experience at a smaller company, that onboarding process. And I went through those exact same thoughts where I want to prove myself and I can't yet because I've got to go through these modules and learn this, that and the other. So I think that's I'm so glad you called that out because for the listeners out there, when you do break into tech and it will happen that you're going to come across this. And it's okay to be cognizant of it, because that desire to do great things, I think will help propel you. But it's also important to kind of rein that back in a little bit and try to be realistic. So as to, to deal with that imposter syndrome. And on that note, Catherine, I'm curious, how did you work through that at the time, or even now imposter syndrome? And I guess, yeah, just just working through that.
0: So I have a couple things. One is I didn't work through it at that startup and I didn't work through it until I was months into my job at LinkedIn, where I started to realize, oh, this is normal, hmm. right? And I can do this. Um, the other thing that I will say that's, that's super ironic is when I was at Turing, we had to do tech talks. And so you would go up and talk about a technical topic well, my technical topic was the imposter syndrome. So it wasn't even technical. Um, but it was something that I was really passionate uh, speaking about. And it ended up winning like a talk talk award. Everyone absolutely loved it. Um, and it's something that like secretly I'm kind of proud of because it was pretty funny. Yep. And I don't consider myself to be like an, uh, an incredibly funny person, but it was a great talk. And so it was ironic that Then I left Turing and was all of a sudden deep into this thing that I had just given a talk on. Um, and it wasn't until, yeah, honestly, probably six to eight months later that I realized it's okay to feel this way.
1: Yeah. So from that startup position was your next play LinkedIn or was there anything in between that?
0: So prior to getting that startup position, I had applied to LinkedIn. Um, I did that through LinkedIn. Everyone always asks, like, did you know someone or how did you get in? Uh, But it was through their Reach Apprenticeship program. And I didn't hear back for a while. Um, And it wasn't until I was about five weeks into my new role that I got the call, did a phone interview, and then they said, hey, we want to fly you out. Flew out, did a full day interview on campus, And they said, you got the job. And I was like, oh, wow, like, this is crazy. And I'm absolutely going to take this. And I feel so bad because I've been at this other company for six weeks. And so I remember going to the CTO and just like, honestly, I was crying because I felt so guilty. I was like, is this the right thing to do? Like, is this moral? Is this okay? But I was not going to say no to LinkedIn. And so I told him, I was like, look, I got this opportunity. Thank you so much for taking me on and believing in me. And I'm out. So (laughs) that was the transition.
1: Totally. And now as a current reach apprentice, selfishly, I am absolutely going to ask about that in person application process because... I think it's well known where now there's an essay, then there's a take home assignment. You do that. And then there's a total of four hours. You have the technical review, basically a behavioral and just a coffee chat. So how does that maybe compare with what the program looked like a few years ago? I'm I'm really interested.
0: Yeah, it's actually very similar. So I had the first phone interview and then came on campus, um, had to prepare a project ahead of time. So I worked on that for a couple of weeks. And um, then, yeah, had the four hour technical and cultural interview, um, got to meet someone who was a current REACH apprentice. We had lunch together and we ended up then being on the same team later on, which was fun. Nice. And uh, it was fantastic, honestly. I mean, it just speaks to the company's values and, and why I love it so much. Everything about that process was um, enriching. And I know that that seems like a funny word, but just every piece of it, I didn't feel any pressure. I didn't feel nervous. I felt very supportive, uh, supported. And, you know, it was funny because we were doing the technical piece and I was like, all right, breathe, Catherine, like, let's do this. And then we just went into it and they were asking me questions. What does this mean? Why did you write this? How does this work? And I walked them through line by line by line, and they were silent the entire time. I got to the end of my code, and they were still silent, and so I was a little nervous. Yeah. And they went, wow, that is the best explanation I have ever heard. Nice. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like
1: That's good, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was afraid of the silence, but um, now I know you're right. just kind of like stunned or something. Um, yeah. So that was fantastic. And uh, then the cultural interview went really, really well. And I was able to draw a lot on my, my teaching experience, my stories in the classroom, and my skills as a teacher standing in front of the room, having to explain concepts in a very simple way, for 30 little people. I mean, I didn't realize that those two would have so much intersectionality and would support each other, but they did. And I yeah. was very happy at that point that my path was so diverse and had taken yeah. me the route that it did.
1: Yeah, no, those transferable skills, which so many people I talk with, they they discount those because mm-hmm. I guess at first glance, it might be easy to dismiss teaching and how that could translate into tech. But to your point, There are always connections to be drawn and it's just a question of storytelling, I guess, to convey that. And it's, I I just, yeah, I'm so happy for you because I feel like I was there in the interview process with you. So thank you for for taking me through that as well. So then you are a UX engineer at LinkedIn. What what was that like?
0: Yeah. So I got started in... December, came in for a couple weeks, had to move across the country. So that was fun. Uh, LinkedIn was very supportive through that process. And then, like I say, so I started in December, we had the company break. And then Hmm. I didn't feel like I onboarded fully until like mid February. Right. So about two months in and again, I just felt so much pressure um because i was like wow i'm not fixing tickets i'm not writing code like i'm still trying to get through benefits and permissions and getting this system set up and connected to that system and um you know the people who are working there your managers the employees they haven't done that process like you do it once and then you never do it again and so when yeah. you're trying to help someone else do it you're like uh I don't know, <laughs> and so right. um, and they're busy with their own jobs, and so it was just very interesting to go through that process, and only until afterwards realize, like I didn't need to have all that pressure on myself. I do wish it had been structured differently. Like in general, I wish that when we're bringing on new employees, regardless of the company, that you're like, okay, this person is going to add a ton of value, and so it is worthwhile for me to take. Two solid days, clear my schedule and sit down and make sure that they get connected to everything. Like that would have expedited the process a thousand percent um, rather than all the fumbling that I just like independently went through. Um, But besides that, once I got started, I was able to work on some pretty cool products that impacted employees across the company. I was on the internal tools team, still am in the internal org. And started uh, just networking and gaining mentors and learning the code base. And once you push those PRs, um, you realize two things. You realize, one, that you can do it. And two, that this is not like <laughs> your coding bootcamp. Um, yes. There are many more checks and balances and complicated systems and things that people want to see from you that you didn't have to include in your PRs before, Uh, so it's a big learning curve and has lots of room for doubt, but eventually you realize like everyone's going through the same process, whether they're a senior staff or principal engineer and you can add just as much value as they can.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. And then I don't want to gloss over the time that you were in the reach program, but I believe you got promoted out of that. So I'm curious, maybe at a a little bit of a higher level. How did your time in the REACH program go? How did you progress? And then when it came time to, I guess, go through that promotion period, what was that like, I guess, when you actually got promoted out of the program and then you became the the, the real, I don't want to put it that way, but the, <laughs> the IC2, I guess, engineer at LinkedIn?
0: Yeah. So I was in the apprenticeship program for about a year and a half. And the only difference between being an apprentice and being a software engineer, you're still doing the exact same work, but you get 20% of your time to study whatever you want. So you could learn a new language, you could study computer science fundamentals. Um, It just gives you extra support. You have a mentor. And hopefully by the time you are promoting, you just are more independent as a software engineer, right? At a year and a half, I was a little bit Antsy, I was like, I think I'm ready to move on to the next step. And I actually was in conversation with my manager, and the initial uh, sentiment was I wasn't ready. Okay. And so I had been keeping track of everything that I had done, every task I had done, everything I'd accomplished, every PR that got pushed, every um like Bravo, which for those who are listening is basically like a reward that you get from your fellow employees or managers who are shouting you out, saying that you did a good job on something particular. Like I kept every one of those every time that I presented a tech talk or helped out another team and they said, you know, nice job. Like I had screenshots of all of those. I compiled everything together into a 65 slide PowerPoint (laughs) and went to my boss's boss and said, I'm ready. And he was like, Okay, if you feel like you're ready, let's do this. And then they promoted me and I was able to move on to um, just different, not more advanced, uh, but just different projects. And really, all it was is like a pay and title change. Because again, you're pretty much doing the same work as an apprentice, than a full time software engineer, you just don't have the 20% learning time specifically, because now it's integrated into your job.
1: I want to highlight where you took complete ownership in your promotion process because the manager, which didn't, they don't have the same context that we have because they're managing more than just one or two people, obviously. And I think it's so telling that you were keeping this My manager calls it, I guess, a brag document, but basically a list of PRs, a list of contributions, Bravos, all the things that you're doing. And I feel like that's absolutely relatable to anyone out there listening, whether you're in the position now or not yet is to, to keep track of those accolades. And even if you're trying to break into tech, I feel like reviewing things that you've done and things that you've learned will give you that confidence boost to help you maybe take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. And then when you're at the same level as Catherine, when you're looking to get promoted from a an apprentice perhaps or an entry level to the next level, you'll have that practice of documenting the things that you've done, almost like a log, a log of accomplishments, I guess. And then using that as data, which LinkedIn, as most companies are, I think they're very data driven. And yeah, I I have no doubt that you made the decision for them by presenting them with the factual data that you had kept. So I just think it's so amazing. I wanted to highlight that aspect of what you did. So that's your quote unquote day job. Now, I think you're also a, a global lead for accessibility, if I'm Remembering that correctly, I'm curious if you want to talk about that and what that's like.
0: Yeah. So when I was in my fourth module at Turing, we had to do a final project. And as I mentioned before, at that time, I had a family member who was really sick and I wasn't, I don't know if inspired is like the right word in that context, but I'll use it. I was inspired to create a final project that would help them in their daily struggles with their illness, um, which didn't like took away some of their normal abilities. And so I got heavily involved in accessibility. How could we build an accessible product? And it was called Sophia. It was speech operated personal household, uh, forget what I was, or like interactive assistant, I think is what it was. And so it was completely speech operated and you could complete all of your daily tasks and it would communicate with your caretaker. And so um, basically this this family member was having a hard time like typing and a hard time looking at the screen and that kind of stuff. And so they could just use voice to text functionality in order to create all of the to-dos and then it would um, be sent over to the caretaker's um, app, like their side of the app and then you could complete these tasks and they would know right away that like, yes, these things got done, so they don't have to be stressed about it. Anyways, I was super deep into accessibility with that project. And then when I came to LinkedIn and was doing um, my onboarding and starting to work on projects, I was like, wow, there's no resources that I can find for how to engineer it in an in an accessible way. And so I started building a checklist of what engineers should be looking at. And I sent it past my boss and he was like, yeah, this is good. You know, I actually know of someone who does accessibility engineering work. Like, why don't you run it by them? So I started meeting new people who were involved in accessibility and they started referring me to more people. And I started getting exposed to this whole kind of underground world like it it wasn't super obvious that there were all these people engaged in accessibility and I started networking and making all these connections and getting involved in a lot of different initiatives across the company and one of those was um our ERG that's focused on mental health and accessibility and I eventually became a co-chair for our headquarter office for that um ERG. And then the other piece is we needed someone to make sure that our internal tools were accessible. And so I'm like a TPM for 11 different, um, lines of business that we track to make sure that they're accessible on the internal side.
1: And what is a TPM?
0: Technical, um, product manager.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah, no, and so I'm hearing again, it's almost like you you just kind of willed this, not job, but this, this position into existence through your interest and through this tenacity that I guess you had to explore that. And I've seen something a little bit similar in my own initiative like this podcast to try to help people, especially from non-traditional backgrounds, break into tech. I've also been exposed to people throughout the company that I wouldn't otherwise have met. And mm-hmm. I, I guess even this conversation that we're having right now, stems from that because I, th- I think you saw a linkedin post or something like that and it's just i think zooming out i think that's a testament to follow your passions and yeah i mean great things that you can't even imagine in that path that we envision for ourselves can show up before our eyes so i i feel like that's that's amazing
0: yeah your passions will lead you places that's definitely one thing that's paid off a lot in my career is following whatever i'm excited and passionate about and i've received more on one side like reward and recognition but on the other internal side like fulfillment and satisfaction from being able to serve in ways that that excite me
1: yeah i love that now i found a newsletter and before i ask you about this particular letter i wanted to ask you do you still maintain this i think it was a bi-weekly newsletter do you still produce that
0: Yep, so it's called Opportunity Made. It was originally Life in the Valley, but I've changed the name if that matters. And uh, it is a bi weekly newsletter. Sometimes it's not always bi weekly, but um, try to be. And it is just focused on what I'm learning as a young professional, as an early leader. Um, they could be things related to my life, related to careers, related to things that others are struggling with. I have a lot of um, one-on-one coaching sessions with either people inside the company or students outside the company who will come and ask me questions. So a lot of it is, is inspired by those conversations as well.
1: Okay, no, I love that. And the particular letter that I came across was titled, From Bootcamp to Hired Software Engineer. And in this, Catherine, I see that you had basically five tips and I thought maybe we could run through them quickly here. And I think I know the answer to some of these, but maybe I don't. And I feel like each and every one of these would add value to the listeners out there. So are you up for that?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: All right. So the first one here is know that you can do it. So what does that mean?
0: Yeah, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but in our society, we have created this stereotype around software engineers they're highly valued, they're geniuses, they are bros that eat Doritos and Pepsi in the basement, right? Like, there's all of these different stereotypes that, yeah, to some degree are true, like, you do need to, especially if you have a computer science degree, it's probably pretty math heavy, and, um, you know, but what I've realized is that they're just human beings, and it's just another job and that's not to demean it by any means like yes it's valuable but what it is to what I am getting at is that I want it to be accessible to anyone if you want to do this job do it because one, you want to and not because it's glorified in society but two then go do it and and you absolutely can so for me I needed an extra like six weeks to get through my boot camp All right. So maybe you need an extra couple of years of study, or maybe you need to go take a couple extra math classes or whatever it is like life is long. You have plenty of time. Give yourself the grace and support that you need. If you have a goal you want to go after, go after it and don't be comparing your timeline to anyone else's timeline. Don't compare your abilities to anybody else's. Just go after your goal. So that's why I say know that you can do it. Maybe, you know, Joe over here takes a year and you take 10. So what you still made it, you still made it. So have grace for yourself and go do it.
1: Yeah. I love that. All right. Number two, ask for feedback.
0: Yeah. Uh, This is something that I have consistently done, especially at my time at LinkedIn. I'm always going to my manager saying, all right, what else, what else, what else? And it's not to have this endless vacuum of more, but I just know that there's always something else that I can get better at either on a big scale or on a small scale, because as I get better at something and then I take on more responsibilities or new challenges, it's going to expose new weaknesses and areas that I can grow. And so I'm always asking for feedback from my manager, from mentors, from people that I work with. Another great way to do that is to ask for recommendations on LinkedIn. They tend to be positive feedback, but positive feedback is also helpful because a lot of times we don't stop to celebrate ourselves. We don't recognize all that we've accomplished. To your point, James, in in keeping a brag document, it's important for us to realize how incredible we are. I feel like there's not enough weight put on that. So even if the feedback you're getting is positive, that's awesome. Have you internalized that? Like do a gut check. Did you recognize that within yourself or is this positive information new to you? Yeah. So yeah, ask for feedback.
1: Yeah. No, I love that. And I'm very guilty of constantly living in the future and not really appreciating where I'm at. So I, I can see the the value in asking for feedback and also appreciating where we are in the journey. All right. The next one, number three, and I was particularly interested in this because I feel like I'm bad at this aside from LinkedIn. So it's connect on community forums. What does that mean?
0: Mm -hmm. So that goes back to my job journey and the insight that you pulled out in that path. I didn't get jobs from applying other than LinkedIn. The rest of them were all through meetups, Slack channels, mentorships. So Go out, get involved in those kinds of arenas, but also, as we were speaking to earlier, follow your passions, because by doing that, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but while I was engaging in accessibility at LinkedIn, I had three other teams that came to me. One was from the legal department and said, Uh hey, do you want to work with us? We want you on our team. And that... I mean, I was creating job opportunities for myself left and right and not even knowing, not because of my engineering work, but because of my passion for accessibility. So, um, yeah, go, go get involved, give time to the things that you care about, and it can turn into a career that you love. Yeah,
1: no, I love that. And I feel like that kind of leads into number four, but I'll, I'll go over it anyway, and it's look for jobs by building these relationships. Don't build relationships to get a job.
0: Yeah. So a lot of times people will buddy up to others who are in high places, quote unquote, so that way they can get something from them. Right. And I've learned this is just a principle for life treat everybody kindly, don't overlook people, don't gravitate towards certain people because of the way that they look or the position that they hold or the power and authority that you think they have. There are so many opportunities that have come into my life from characters I didn't expect, right? And just by treating people with grace and kindness and valuing everyone equally, um, you will open so many more doors for yourself And so that's why I say, like, don't connect with someone on LinkedIn because of, you know, the esteem that they seem to have socially. Sometimes it's the people that you wouldn't think um, that are going to open up the doors for you. So really just go with the intention of how can I care for and appreciate and connect with this human being? Done. Like there's no other motivation. Just just fuel and feed that relationship and don't yeah. have an expectation of what it's going to turn into. And yeah. those are usually the ones that turn into something great.
1: Yeah, no, put out positive energy into the universe and it'll, it'll take care of the, uh, the rest. And I always say that life is much more fun played as a team sport, as opposed to like a solo one. So, yeah. All right. And then number five was lean into your soft skills.
0: Mm-hmm. So I am a good engineer. I'm not a great one. And when I was interviewing at LinkedIn, I definitely was not <laughs> a great one. Um, I did not get to see my interview results, but I do strongly believe that it was my soft skills that helped me in that interview. As I was sharing before, my ability to communicate, to break down complex concepts and articulate step-by-step what they mean, why they're there, Um, my emotional intelligence, my interpersonal skills, my ability to tell stories and demonstrate clearly why do they have meaning, those were all things that were heavily valued in the interview process. Now, I will say LinkedIn in general has a culture for valuing those things. If I was interviewing possibly, let's say, at Amazon, who I know has like a very hard technical interview, I don't know that I would have made it. I don't know that they would have leaned into those things. I also have never interviewed at Amazon, so I'll just say that. But for what matters in my life and the kind of company culture that I want to engage in, those soft skills were very important in the process. And again, if you look at my job application process, the resumes that I sent out to all those different companies didn't do anything for me. It was the relationships that I built that got me engineering positions. Yes. This is kind of true across life, right? We're all humans and it's your ability to be a good human and treat other humans well that tends to pay off. And then it's great to have the technical skills to back it up, but it's kind of a secondary thing.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. So that was just one letter from your newsletter. And I will definitely put a link in the show notes to that. And I understand you also have a podcast. Do you want to talk about that?
0: Yeah. So that's also called Opportunity Made. And it is just something fun that I love to do to find people who have made it through a sticky place in their life and look back and say, how did you do it? Right? How did you get to that sticky place? What was that sticky place like? And how did you move through it? Because one of the biggest things that I'd love for people to understand is that we have the ability to create new opportunities for ourselves and others by being intentional on a regular basis. If you are present to what's right before you in life and you really lean into it, there's so much opportunity to connect with, to elevate, to enhance your own life and the lives of those around you. But it takes presence intentionality and accountability. And I'm going to go off on a quick uh, tangent here, James, just by saying, even if you think about how many people there are in the world, right? We're seven, 8 billion people. I am never going to get to know the privilege of knowing probably 99 or 99.9% of them, right? So if I can be present to my life, whoever comes across my path, like that's a huge opportunity that's a rare chance to meet someone that I never would have been able to meet before. Like it's an honor and a privilege. And so there was one time I was in the grocery store and this woman was the cashier and I'm on the phone. I'm, I'm talking to my dad and I was like, Hey dad, you know, I need to hang up and, and call you back. I didn't want to be on the phone while I was checking out. I wanted to be present with her. And, um, so I get off the phone and she's already asked me, how am I doing? And I just kind of gave her a head nod of, like, yeah, I'm good. Mm. Trying to get off the phone, right? So she already feels like I'm not present with her. Yep. And so I reset and I said, I looked her in the eyes and I said, how are you? And just kind of lingered for a second. And she, who had been in like a, a terrible kind of down state, all of a sudden she perked up. And she mm. was like, you know what? It's been a really long day. And I was like, I can see that. I can see that it's been hard. And the minute that she felt seen and heard, oh my goodness, her energy shifted like crazy. She's all of a sudden like moving things through the line really fast. She's talking to the people behind me being like, hey, how's it going? I'll be with you in a second. Like her just energy completely shifts. And yeah. she sees that I'm buying um, cornbread mix. And she goes, oh, my goodness, if you add sour cream to this, it's going to be the best thing ever. <laughs> like, she sees that I'm buying a pot pie. just like, oh, I love these pot pies. I mean, it was just totally different. Yeah. And there was so much joy. And so we get to the end of it. And, you know, I go, hey, let's say her name was Laura. Hey, Laura, have a great day. And she goes, you too, darling. And we both were just beaming. The people behind me were smiling at the interaction. I mean, everyone's energy was just lifted. And I got to have this beautiful exchange with someone that I will probably never see again in my life. And it had a huge impact on me. I'm sure it impacted her. And that's what happens when we can just be present to what's right before us. We created an opportunity for joy. And that's what the podcast is all about.
1: Yeah. Wow. That, uh, Yeah. I'm blown away by that, Catherine. Uh, It cost you so little to take the actions that you just described. And to your point, you just, you set the world off into a whole different direction through all those people and all the the peoples in those, in their direct networks that would be positively influenced by that. I wish more people adopted that mindset. And I, I hope that's an action item for anybody listening out there is to just be present to your point and to, to put positive energy out into the world. That's beautiful. Thank you. All right. Now, are you ready for the, uh, hot seat? I've got a few rapid fire questions to better understand the psychology of Catherine.
0: Yes, let's do it.
1: All right. What does your typical morning routine look like?
0: Oh, this is a good one. Um, I have a very strong routine. So it used to not be this way at all. I would open up my laptop and immediately start working and I would work for 16, 18 hours a day, nonstop. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even eat. It was terrible. Um, And I have since grown up and learned that it matters that you sleep, you know, a decent amount each night that you eat three meals a day. And part of that is my routine. So in fact, even just this morning, like I've already been up for three hours, we've been on this podcast for an hour. So those first two hours, um, I'll just kind of walk you through it. So I do what's called priming. Um, it's something that Tony Robbins is an advocate of, and he has a video on. And basically, you're just priming your mind. You do some deep breathing You go through gratitude. You pick three goals that you haven't accomplished yet that you want to see yourself accomplishing. Then I move into a meditation. Um, I do some journaling. I have two journals that are five-year journals. And so you just kind of write in there every single day um, for the next five years. So I do that. Then I read the Bible. And then I pray and then after that i do some body movement so i have a trampoline and i will it's a rebounder so it's a small trampoline i will jump on that i do body padding i do joint rolling and then i read from a book like just a couple of pages whatever book i'm reading at the time then i'll do an hour in the gym which is either like cardio and weights and come back and then get ready for the rest of my day like shower breakfast and then start work um so i don't i'm not ever like on my phone or on social media or anything like that i just give myself a couple of hours to really prime myself and um just set my intention for the day and and make sure my body is ready to go
1: of all the times i've asked that question i don't want to say that that was the best answer but it was definitely one of the most powerful morning Mm -hmm. routines and i will be going back and listening and trying to integrate different parts of that into my own. So thank you for that. That was amazing. All right. If money didn't exist, what do you think that you would do every day?
0: If I didn't need money, I want to say I'd be doing what I'm doing now because I absolutely love what I'm doing. What I will say though is if we weren't using money, whatever we were using instead, like I would want more of that, let's say. And I I mean this because um, money is a great facilitator for serving other people. And I wish that I had more so that way I could give more. And I had more power, more resources to to help others. There's so many people that, um, like I have a friend who is in school right now and he really wants to go to Rome. Um, on a trip, and is trying to figure out how to make that happen. And it would just be so cool to be like, you know what, I got this for you, and gift him something like that. So I know that that doesn't directly answer the question. But whatever we were able to just give, I'd love to have it unconditionally. So that way I can serve other people in that way.
1: Yeah, I like that very altruistic of you. All right. If you could send a single message to your former self to help you during your transition into tech, what do you think that message would be?
0: Um, I think I would say nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> and so <laughs> you're going to be fine. And what that means is, you know, I've paired programmed with senior and staff engineers and we've come across errors that they're like, yeah, I have no idea. And mentally, I was like, wait, but I look at this title, it means you're supposed to know more than I do. And I'm sure in some areas they do, but in other areas, I might know more. And so just don't like, just don't weigh the titles and all that stuff too heavily. Humble yourself and just know that you can do it.
1: I love that. And I, and even... Zooming out a little bit and applying that framework to the real world, quote unquote. I feel like I've often joked about this with friends and family. If you really look for the vast majority of situations and people, most people have no idea what they're doing. A lot of times I don't know what I'm doing. You just try to, you know, we do the best we can and we try to figure it out along the way. But understanding that and adopting that framework, I feel like really will help give you that confidence to push through.
0: Yeah. And if I can add to that, James, I'll just say... That's also the power of being present with today, because I used to live in this place where I'm ambitious and I need to accomplish and I need to do more and more and more because I wasn't thinking that I was good enough. So I was trying to fill a hole in that way. The point being is I was always focused on the future and I wanted to make it. I wanted to get there. It was this destination focused process. When am I going to be successful? right yeah. and all of those things never pan out because life is a journey and when you can just be present to today you say all right what's before me today and let me just address it as it comes because if i think about oh my goodness today is stressful and this is what the next 30 years are going to be like then you just put the weight of the world on yourself and you want to hide under the covers yeah but if you can just be present with today And whenever you come across a sticky point or something that you don't know, go ask someone, go look it up. You'll figure it out or you'll figure it out tomorrow or next week, but you will figure it out at some point and then you move on. And it's such a relaxed way of living. And it's something I've been practicing, I would say like the last six months. And that is what's allowed me to sleep and eat and do my routine and go to the gym and still get to the end of my day and be like, yeah. I did what I needed to do because I'm not looking down the line and putting all this pressure on myself and then operating from that place in my day-to-day. It just, I don't get as much done and it's not the same kind of quality when I'm coming from that place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. Now, to a listener out there that might think that they tend to go all in with whatever they're doing and maybe their justification for... Doing that is to try to get to that next level. And to your point, they're not being present. What would you say to them to help them try to, I guess, find that balance of both being present, but not... I don't want to say being overly present, but not getting lost in the present. And forsaking whatever kind of future ambition this person might have, if that question makes sense.
0: So I like to address this in terms of compound interest. So if... I put away $10 every day from the time I'm 22 to 30 versus putting away $10,000 when I'm 30. By the time I'm 40, I'm going to have much more money if I'm putting away $10 a day, right? And so there is this concept, and I have totally spent the last 10 years in that energy of, no, 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 no. like just more, more, more. I'm a superhuman. I can do it. I know... People can't, and I haven't figured it out, but I'm going to be the one who figures it out. I'm going to be the one who scales up. I'm going to be the one who can take on everything and do all of it well, because I'm going for some big ambitious goal. And I have had to be humbled and had to come to the place where it's like, nope, like it's $10 a day. It's focusing on yeah. what's right here. It's being present to the person before you and the conversation. And all of a sudden, Time warps. And what I mean by that is I am able to get much more done from that place than I ever would have thought. Like I, I worked seven hours a day. I slept or sorry, not seven hours a day. I worked seven days a week, slept four hours a day, did not eat meals, like took on everything. I now sleep eight hours a day. I don't work on Sundays and I'm able to get more done now than I did before and more is happening in my career more is happening in my personal life and I feel calmer and more satisfied than I ever did in that place so do less I know that that sounds weird and you'll actually end up doing more and just be present to what's before you if you think you should be moving in some direction actually move in the opposite direction and that's probably where you'll find the treasure chest
1: yeah, $10 a day. I love that analogy. And that's definitely a, an action item for me to try to work on being more present. All right. Are there any books or podcasts that have had the biggest impact on you?
0: Uh, one podcast that I like is the No Barriers podcast. So No Barriers is an organization that is based in Colorado. And it was formed by Eric Weimer, who is um, blind And I believe he was the first blind man to summit Everest. And so the whole organization is about how do you remove barriers for people with physical disabilities, but also it speaks to the mental and emotional barriers as well. Um, And I just love listening to the stories that they have on there of other people who have broken through barriers. So that's um, one that I tend to listen to. Actually, for having a podcast, I don't listen to too many podcast. Um, but that one's particularly good.
1: Okay. Any books
0: in terms of books? Um, I love John C. Maxwell and Stephen Covey. So any of their books are really good just for personal development. Um, there is a book by Chris Wilson. It's called the master plan Um, he was in jail for a while and in jail, he turned his life around and built this master plan for himself and ended up like accomplishing all these things and changing all of the people around him. You know, they used to make fun of him for reading books in jail and for studying. And then all of a sudden they were coming to him saying like, wait, can I get my degree too? Like, can I, you know, and so they started to invest in themselves. I love stories like that, where it just shows the human potential.
1: Yeah, I'll have to check those out. All right, Catherine, is there anything else that you're working on that you want to share?
0: I will self-promote one particular project. So I started a nonprofit seven years ago when I was in college. Um, That was something that I referred to earlier. It's called the Leon Foundation of Excellence. And we are focused on working with young people 15 to 25 and helping them start the journey of healing intergenerational patterns of poverty, trauma, and abuse. So that is my passion project, um, something that I absolutely love. We've worked with over a hundred different students who are usually at risk or on probation, helping them change their lives. So we've had uh, students who would say at the beginning of the program, We asked them their vision for their future and they would say, you know, I don't even think I'm going to live beyond 18 because they were just growing up in such a bad environment. They assumed they'd die from drugs or gang violence and they get to the end of the program and they're like, wow, I am so excited to go to college and for my future and all of these different goals and dreams that I have. So literally in a matter of two weeks, we gave them mentally and emotionally 40, 60, 80 more years on their life just by changing the way that they um, worked through their past and saw their environment and oriented their own identity in that environment. So um, if anyone's interested, you can check that out at www.leonfe.org.
1: Okay, we'll definitely throw that in the show notes as well to make it easy for people. And uh, yeah, so aside from that, where can people go to find out more about you?
0: Yeah. So OpportunityMade.com or OpportunityMade on any of the social media. That's also the name of the podcast and the name of the newsletter. So that's kind of my brand. Um, And yeah, you can message me on LinkedIn. That's probably my favorite platform. So connect there, DM me. I'm always happy to help.
1: All right. And I guess to close this out, Catherine, what would you say your number one piece of advice to anyone listening that thinks they might want to make a similar transition into tech?
0: I would say do it because it means something to you, not because it pays well or seems prestigious in society.
1: Yeah. You have to truly, truly be passionate about it to to get the most out of it. I, I love that. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your story.
0: Thanks for having me, James.
1: Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Spotify. It's a free way you can support the show and help other people just like you find the story and others like it. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. And most importantly... If you know someone that might be interested in breaking into tech, tell them about the show.